Okay, so let's talk about location for a second in terms of where we are at in Luke. Just a little reminder. We're still early, but we're well into Jesus' ministry, right? We've seen um, different miracles. He's begun teaching and healing. Um, you know, he's getting into scraps with the Pharisees already, and now we come to what many refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, which is famous. Uh, it, it is that in Matthew here in Luke, similar passage, but this time it's shorter uh, by, a, by a significant amount than it is in Matthew, and it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Perhaps it's a plain up in the mountains, or maybe, as you know, teachers often do, Jesus talked about similar things as he went around to different places, and you know, this is just a repeat of some of what he talked about there, and the disciples were like, okay, here we go. I bet he talks about planks and wineskins again today. You know, like they were, they were used to it. Um, but I think before we really dig into the specific teachings, uh, it's important for us to locate the Sermon on the Mount in the context of what Jesus is doing overall in his ministry right? So to do that, I think it's helpful to remember the overarching theme of what Jesus does when he starts his ministry is as he stated it himself, and as John the Baptist said, when he starts off, he says, repent that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. And so we can take that cue as that must be key to what he's doing, right? That's what he starts with. That's what he starts saying. That's how John the Baptist leads the way for him. This kingdom of God stuff must be really important. And so he's starting a new kingdom. It's here on earth, instituting it here, and that's a bold claim, right? He's coming in, he's saying that he is God here to start the kingdom. But that's the time period we're still in today, 2,000 years later. We're in this time period where Jesus has come saying the kingdom of God is here and started it, but obviously the fullness of that kingdom of God is not fully here yet, right? That's the period that that started with Jesus and his ministry and that we still live in. It's present, the kingdom is, in the, in the people of God, in the spirit of God working in the world, but it's obviously not full and won't be full until Jesus returns. So why does that matter for today? Well, I think it's important because the Sermon on the Mount, or plain, is that we get this concentrated, very stark picture of what kind of people God expects us to become as we move towards that kingdom that is starting now and is to come, right? So the Sermon on the Mount really is this concentrated set of kingdom ethics, if you will. It's how are we called to be a part of that kingdom that Jesus starts? How do we live? It's almost like a repeat of the law for them. Like they had the law in the Old Testament and Jesus comes in and starts a new kingdom and says, here is the law now although he doesn't call it that. That's important to note, even if it may seem obvious, because for a lot of people, I think we should just be realistic. The Sermon on the Mount is where we find Jesus at some of his most unreasonable moments. But in the proper context, we should understand that Jesus had to do this, right? If he's starting something new, if he's starting a new kingdom, it makes sense he had to push his listeners far beyond what felt reasonable to them at that time and certainly far beyond what feels reasonable to us now. Because what seems reasonable, quote-unquote, right, for you and me is based almost entirely on the experiences that we have in the world that we live in, the way that we're shaped by all of that. And that's all the old world. That's all the old kingdom that shapes us, right? That's not the kingdom world. And that old world is full of confusion and dying ideologies. And so what seems instinctual to a monkey is not reasonable to a penguin, right? They're living in two different worlds. And in the same way, what's reasonable to a kingdom-minded person should sound insane to a person who's saturated in the mind of the old world. It has to be distinct. So it's good, as we read this stuff, to let Jesus' words 
sound new and also sound alarming and sound very unreasonable. That's all good. We should be expecting that. Because our mind still, if we're honest, is very much saturated in the old world, right? We don't have a kingdom-saturated mind. That's why we still mess up all the time. So if we just continue to live in ways that seemed reasonable to that old world, we're just destined to become very excellent members of a kingdom that's the wrong kingdom and the one that's passing away. So we need these words. Okay, with that being said, that just kind of hopefully frames this Sermon on the Mount a little bit. Let's dive into what specifically he talks about. And these are going to be, for today's purposes, I'm going to call them the three unreasonables. So unreasonable number one is about giving or generosity. <clears throat> so hopefully you caught that as he talked about it as we read it. First, I would say that this part of the sermon is an aside, but I don't by that mean that it's less important than the rest. Not at all. By an aside, I just mean it doesn't neatly fit into the rest of what I'm talking about. So we'll just call it an important tangent. Um, let's talk about the way he talks about money. I'm mostly putting it in here because it's, it is straightforward, but it's still very, very difficult. Um, and I just want us to pay attention to it today, especially since we've been talking about our church budget and things like that. I wanted to include these thoughts. Um, also, I, I get to say things, which is nice, because I don't get paid by DNC. So I'm not saying any of this to like, give me your money, because I get it. Like, I don't. So I feel like it's a good opportunity for me to say some stuff that would be more awkward for Josh to say, or Leslie. Okay, so Jesus says, if you lend to people who repay you, what good is that? That's how the world lends. See, he's contrasting right there, reasonable in the kingdom versus reasonable in the world. So he says in the kingdom ethic, you lend without expecting anything back. And later he says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. I don't know if you're like me, that doesn't immediately like strike imagery that's like, oh yeah, of course. So... I looked into this. This is my best analogy for us today. I've got a couple of them. Ideas like this. Picture cotton balls in a jar, right? So you can fill up the jar really quickly with cotton balls. Like you can just kind of like lightly put them in and pretty quickly it'll be at the top. Or you can really push them and like squeeze them together into all the nooks and crannies and take as much air out of there as possible. And you could put probably three or four times as many in the same jar. So Jesus is saying it's the second way, right? That is God's way of giving to us. So this whole press down, shaken out, that kind of thing, he's saying that is how God gives. It's the opposite of stingy. He's giving to us and then shaking, cramming the corners and pushing out the empty space so that there's room to give way more. And even then, as he gives, it overfills and spills out, right? So it reminds me of trash duty. I don't know about in y'all's house, but I'm the trash man in ours for the most part. And you know when you're like, w you walk up to the trash and like, everybody's been here, right? Let's be honest. So it's full, like it's full. It's time to take that thing out. And you're like, I'm sleepy, it's cold out. I don't know where my slippers are. So what do you do? You just like stuff that trash like in as far as you can go. And you say, look, it's not full anymore. And then you go to bed. Um, <laughs> You know, you can't just leave it overflowing because who knows who might walk by and ask you to take the trash out. So you just, you stuff it, okay? There's my point. So I think what I want to say is that <laughs> most of us do that with the trash, but we don't do that with our giving, okay? Some of us with our giving, we're like the cotton ball thing. We're like stretching those cotton balls out, trying to fill up the jar as quickly as possible so we can check that item off our budget, right? And say we're doing our part to give. 
Practically, this may mean you're just making excuses or not, you know, you're justifying not giving more when you could, but you really just wanted that money for something else. I just want to say that is not the kingdom of God ethic around giving, right? God gives like I deal with the trash. He stuffs that container until it overflows. The metaphor does break down immediately because I need to take the trash out, and I don't know what that means about God, but you get it, right? Like we need to be generous like that. We need to be squeezing our budgets to the brink and to give as generously as we can finding the nooks and crannies, taking the air out. And I'm talking to myself here, okay? I'm very challenged by this. There are very good examples of this in our community. I'm not saying like overall everyone doesn't do this. So if you're one of the people who doesn't though, go find those people, talk to them and ask them about how they think about this. Stephen Lowe is a good example of this. I mean, I literally had to talk to that man and convince him to buy new shoes because his big toe was just aggressively pointing at me (laughs) through his shoe every time I talk to him. The man is frugal, but he's also generous. It's not okay to just be frugal for frugal's sake. You have to be generous. So he's a good example. Ask him how he lives out this kingdom ethic around giving and follow him as he follows Christ. Okay, there we are, giving. Unreasonable number two, this whole like slapping stuff, right? Um, Weird. So let's move to the main thing I wanna focus on with our time, which is the rest of these most difficult parts. Okay, so giving, we've got it, but what in the world do we do with all this stuff that is just so countercultural to us now? So, like, specifically, rejoice at hate, at exclusion, at insult. And on top of that, once you're, you know, there, you're done, you're like, okay, I just finished rejoicing at all the people who called me an idiot, then you go rest of the day thinking about what they said, and you're not allowed to even judge them. This stuff is so hard, right? Like, love your enemies, We've heard it so many times, I think it just washes over us. But picture a day like that, like a day in your life like that, where someone just blasts you all day, and then think about what Jesus tells you you're supposed to do in response to that. That's very hard. (laughs) There was a quote in an article I read a while back about a prominent church leader reflecting on why he is convinced— He's kind of a pastor of pastors, so he talks to a lot of them. But anyways, he's convinced that the modern American church is in crisis. When asked how he got this conclusion, he said, it was a result of having multiple pastors tell me essentially a very similar story. They were quoting the Sermon on the Mount parenthetically in their preaching, and they say something about turn the other cheek, and they had someone come up after them and say, where did you get these liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me so that in the most of the scenarios, when the pastor would say, oh, I'm, I'm just literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, oh, my bad, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. And when we get to that point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we're in a crisis. Okay, so yikes, right? So we're in some serious trouble <laughs> if church members are arguing with Jesus' teachings as being weak. Talk about the old world ideology not letting the new world in at all. But if you buy into a certain worldview, you can understand, right, how people that these pastors were interacting with are coming from very, like, honest places, right? Let's let their argument be in good faith. We can see how you get to this point where you view Jesus' teachings as weak and ineffective, I think a lot of the modern church is scared. They see their slice of the U.S. demographic shrinking year by year. They're worried about what's happening in our country. 
They're worried that we're losing respect. Whatever, we could go on. So if you're in that place, these words of Jesus about turning the other cheek, focusing on mercy, loving your enemies, that's not comforting, right? That's alarming. You're like, Jesus, this is not the time to turn the other cheek. This is the time to fight. (laughs) Things are going bad, right? Maybe, maybe not. Hold that thought. Okay, so that's on the big scale. What about the small scale? What am I supposed to do? So I've been wounded by a friend, right? Do I literally just invite more wounds from them? Just roll over and play dead? Whatever happens, happens? Is that what Jesus is saying? It's interesting to note that it's not what Jesus even does all the time. When confronted by the Pharisees, he doesn't just let them say whatever, unanswered, but he questions their questions. So he isn't passive. He's not exactly self-protecting either. In John 18, after Jesus is arrested and he's in this kind of kangaroo court with the high priest and others, we get this interesting response from Jesus. It says, when Jesus said this, I'm in John 18, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, so yeah, there's an example there, not just taking hits. Should he have not just invited another strike on the cheek in keeping with what he said earlier? So then what are we supposed to do? Maybe we do this. Maybe we imagine scriptures as a big rope, okay? Tugging hard on one side is turn the other cheek, like Jesus says here. But tugging hard on the other side is all of the scripture, an example in our Bible of care for setting things right, care for justice, Jesus' words in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount about peacemaking, if you look at what he's saying there, that's not a passive, like, I just love things to be at peace. It's peacemaking as an active thing that we see as a role that we have in the world. So that doesn't seem to exactly mesh with turning the other cheek. So for example, if someone slaps you on your cheek, is that not wrong, right? Is that not just wrong? What if they go from you and you don't do anything about it? So they're like, well, this is my life now. I can do this. And they're just slapping everyone because you didn't say anything and no one said anything and no one told them it was wrong. And then the next generation of kids that we raise is just okay with slapping everybody. It's just the world that we live in after that. Right? Like I'm obviously like stretching it. But another part of this passage, even if you have a log in your eye, right? It still says there's something in the brother's eye. There's still something wrong. So both of you are doing something wrong. So if we never tell each other, what are we supposed to do? It's all, is it all pointing towards passivity? What is he saying, right? Well, let's consider a couple things. So we've been talking about what Jesus does say and the tension it brings, but let's consider what he doesn't say. He specifically says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, you turn to them the other. I've been slapped very few times in my life, um, but I will say I've never been slapped and feared for my life, okay? Slapping is not a, usually a physical danger sort of interaction. What Jesus doesn't say is cut with a sword, right? Or, you know, for our language, hold a gun to your head. Because maybe Jesus isn't talking about our safety, but about our feelings, What I'm arguing is basically a slap is an assault much more on your honor. It's a personal affront. In fact, in the first century, in the time Jesus was talking, there were fines for slapping someone, and the fines were doubled if you backhanded someone. It's because it was more demeaning, right? Like, it's way worse. (laughs) 
So if Jesus is instructing the first century Jews around slapping, this was likely in mind. So I'm saying I think perhaps this turn the other cheek is much more about something that hurts us internally, something that wounds our honor. It feels like a personal offense, not so much about physical danger or something like that. And I think this might really be the key for us figuring out how to move forward with Jesus' teaching. See, the question these passages lead to uh, for us, the tension, if you will, um, is that, okay, when something's going down, when something's happening, either we're wounded personally and people come out us, or we see that happening with other people, how do we respond as Christians? The question, what are, what are our options? Let's use the cheek-slapping thing again as, a, as an example. So option one is totally passive, right? You just keep the cheek there. They can keep hitting it and hitting it. If you have a friend who's rude to you, this kind of brings it more to reality. Just let them be rude over and over. And this is a popular option for some. Is there any people pleasers out there? Like at its extreme, this is what you do, right? Other option is vindictive. You smack them back. You make them feel just as bad or worse. You're just as rude or more rude or whatever. You're like, that'll show them. Then we get the creative types. There's a combination. There's the passive aggressive all together, right? Where are my people at? Okay, so we don't want to pick one of those options, so we pick both. We smile on the outside, inside, plotting their demise. How are we going to get that? Comes out in condescension, right? These kind of sweetly delivered backhanded compliments, or maybe lying and manipulating, things like that. Okay, so those are our normal options as we're just going about life. We sit quietly, whatever. My point with all this is that it's, it's natural I think our most natural response is to be extremely bothered internally and externally pretend we're okay and not do anything about it. Some of you are hotheads and you're just angry externally and internally. Everyone knows it, but that's, that's not everyone. That's not most people. But remember, what Je- those are all the old world ethic is what I'm saying. Those are our options in the old world. What Jesus is trying to do here is tell us the new kingdom ethic. So if our natural response is to pretend we're okay externally, and be burning internally, Jesus, once again, with the upside-down kingdom, flips that on his head. For Jesus' followers, our only option should be we're on the inside, actually truly forgiving and warm and at peace, but on the outside, we're actively working for the good in the situation, however difficult that process might be. See, what matters, perhaps unsurprisingly, given all of Jesus' inside of the cup type of teaching is our internal state. Where are we coming from when we respond to the slap? It's not about inner, like bother, and outer pretending, but it's about outer working for the good and inner peace. Because with the kingdom mindset, people can continue to insult us, continue to offend us, and the truth is we are going to be okay. Like we don't have to be worried about that. So that leaves no room for vindictiveness, no room for contempt. It only leaves room for forgiveness and working actively for peace. It's the only way. Jesus says it right there. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is the new law of the kingdom. And he says the measure you use, the measure will be measured back to you. So you can't look to score points, right? You forgive. And we might feel afraid of this command as if God is asking us to do something that will harm us in the end. It may cause us pain in the short term, but it will not harm us. And I want to argue that the pain it does cause is by multiple factors less destructive 
than not heeding this command to forgive. Because if we don't forgive, we are still imprisoned by our past and by whatever that person said, and in some ways by that person. Whatever anger you nurse has a chokehold on you. And this is why this is actually good news, right? This is a good news type of thing for this new ethic. Unless you can live that way, forgiving, choosing both justice and kindness, you're going to be imprisoned by the false paths of the current world. They will still have power over you. They'll hold you back from actually becoming the type of person that belongs in the new kingdom that is to come, right? Or do you think the new earth is just going to be full of people who are mostly nice on the outside but secretly hold all kinds of anger and contempt? It's not. It's going to be full of people who have been freed from this stuff. They're freed from the sins done against them, and the only way to freedom is this Jesus ethic he lays out. Okay, unreasonable three. Don't judge. So within this teaching, um, he says, do not judge or you will too be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And this goes right along with the last one, because judgment kills our compassion, right? It kills it. It murders our mercy. It gives no room for humility. We stop viewing people as we should, and it makes it all the more easy to cut ties, move on, and forget about mission. I'm going to read an excerpt. Um, I've read it now uh, a few times in talks, so if you've heard it, I'm sorry, but not really. I haven't really found a better one that connects with this idea, so I keep using it. Um, But it's from Henri Nouwen, who you may have heard about. He's writing about uh, solitude and the desert fathers and mothers of long ago, and basically the need for solitude as a way to connect with the heart of God, and specifically around these things having to do with learning God's heart of compassion and, and dealing with our judgment. So if you hear him in this expert talk about solitude in the desert, that's what he's referencing. Um... And yeah, I just haven't found a quote I like better for this. I think it's really helpful. It's long, so strap in, um, but we'll get there. We can do it. Anyways, he says this. He says, compassion is hard work. It's hard work. It requires the inner disposition to go with others to the place where they are weak, they are vulnerable, lonely, and broken. But this is not our spontaneous response to suffering. What we desire most is to do away with suffering by fleeing from it or finding a quick cure for it. Our greatest gift is our ability to enter into solidarity with those who suffer. It is in solitude that this compassionate solidarity grows. In solitude, we realize that nothing human is alien to us, that the roots of all conflict, war, injustice, cruelty, hatred, jealousy, and envy are deeply anchored in our own heart. In solitude, our heart of stone can be turned into a heart of flesh a rebellious heart into a contrite heart and a closed heart into a heart that can open itself to all suffering people. So why? Why does solitude, time with God, give birth to compassion? Because it makes us die to our neighbor. In order to be of service to others, we have to die to them. That is, we have to give up measuring our meaning and value with the yardstick of others. To die to our neighbors means to stop judging them to stop evaluating them, and thus to become free to be truly compassionate. Compassion can never coexist with judgment because judgment creates the distance, creates the distinction, 
and that prevents us from really being with the other. Much of our lives and thoughts are pervaded with judgments. Often, quite unconsciously, we classify people as very good, good, neutral, bad, very bad. These judgments influence deeply the thoughts, words, and actions of our lives together. Before we know it, we fall into the trap of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Those who we consider lazy, indifferent, hostile, obnoxious, we start treating them like that, forcing them in this way to live up to our own views of how they should be instead. And so much of our life is limited by the snares of our own judgments. These self-created limits prevent us from being available to people, and they shrivel up our compassion. Do not judge and you will not be judged is a word of Jesus that is indeed very hard to live up to, but it contains the secret of compassionate living. Abba St. Moses, one of St. Anthony's followers, said to a brother, to die to one's neighbor is this, to bear your own faults and not to pay attention to anyone else, wondering whether they are good or bad. Do no harm to anyone. Do not think anything bad in your hearts towards anyone. Do not scorn the man who does evil. Do not put confidence in him who does wrong to his neighbor. Do not rejoice with him who injures his neighbor. Do not have hostile feelings towards anyone and do not let dislike dominate your heart. Everything is summarized in the words, it is folly for a man who has had a dead person in his house to leave him there and go weep over his neighbor's dead. Solitude leads to the awareness of the dead person in our own house and keeps us from making judgments about other people's sins. Quote over. Okay, so I want to remind you one more time of the words of Jesus. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. The measure you use will be measured to you. Guys, I think if we really understand this, it clicks, right? This is the way of the kingdom. This is what the heart of a kingdom-minded person has to look like. And we have to ask God for this kind of heart over and over. There are no shortcuts or alternative paths that are worth it. You cannot do it with the methods of the world. You cannot do it with the old kingdom that's dying away. You have to do it Jesus' way. That's why he's so insistent. He knows it does not work. So instead of fighting for yourself after the slap on the cheek and the right that you should have after you've been wrong, fight for compassion for those people especially the ones that anger you, especially the ones that frustrate you. Because you are broken. Whatever brokenness that's in them, that's frustrating you and driving you crazy, it's in you too. Maybe it's a different version of it. Maybe theirs, you know, is a tree of something and yours is a sprout. But that's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. The seed of murder is unkindness against another human, right? Remember that? He talks about anger in the Matthew Sermon on the Mount. Maybe the the seed, the sprout of murder is just hate or spiteful words. Then the tree grows and it becomes murder. So don't think you're better than them just because by God's grace that seed didn't get as nasty and overgrown as that tree did in them. You have that in you. And it's only by the grace of God that you are where you are. So who are you to judge, to condemn, or to not forgive? In conclusion, I want to go back to the imagery Jesus uses at the end of our passage. He says, a good tree doesn't produce good fruit, or bad fruit, sorry. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart, 
An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A common image in scripture, right, for them is this agricultural stuff. So, you know, there's stuff around seeds and and farmers, and and we're going to do that again today. So I'm going to use this farmer image once again. This farmer wants to be an orchard farmer. After buying a plot of land, he begins surveying it, looking for the best soil, where to begin planting, all of that. And on this property that he got, there are two really great fields. There's great sunlight, there's great water, great soil, and perfect spots for for orchards. So the farmer plants an orchard in each. As most of these stories go, you probably figured out you are the farmer, right? And the two fields and the orchards are the options you have of what to cultivate in your heart. I think if we take Jesus seriously here in this whole passage, judgment and condemnation in our heart breed the seeds of the old dying world, but orchards really do grow from those seeds. If we cultivate the seeds of sin, right, it will grow. It will be transformed into something that thrives. And when that fruit grows and falls to the ground, it sprouts up new seeds, new seeds of contempt, of hate, and of pain. All of the stuff in our heart that's messed up, all of those seeds reproduce with lust and lies and fears And they produce trees that corrupt ourselves and our neighbors around us. It's not just about us. He tells us what you sow, you will reap. A sprout of anger can become a tree that murders. Flickers of lust that are let go lead to us dehumanizing images of God around us in horrific ways. But again, there's another orchard, right? And this orchard is planted with the kingdom seeds of Jesus' ethic, It's planted with seeds of humility and mercy, of mourning with those who mourn, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a heart that is pure and free from hypocrisy, a desire to work peace in the midst of chaos, all of that stuff, strength and trial. And with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites us to begin to cultivate that orchard instead. And he tells us to grab a flamethrower and walk through the other orchard of anger and contempt and burn it. And then we turn, walk to the other field, and live a life in that orchard where he is cultivating in our hearts these new trees from these new seeds. And the trees that grow from there, they produce trees of mercy for other people, trees of forgiveness for people, trees of peacemaking for people, and trees of generosity that free us to give in ways we couldn't have imagined before. And those trees, that orchard, that blesses the world, right? That ushers in the new kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for laying out this way that we can live, that frees us, that frees us and the people around us. We pray that we would invite your Holy Spirit to be in our hearts working to do this, that we would not see this as something we do on our own, but that we would invite you to do this in us. We love you so much, and we're so thankful. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.